This is The Politics Lab, a podcast that puts politics under a microscope. On this week's episode, Bill and Phil reflect on Donald Trump's controversial remarks encouraging Russia to do whatever the hell they want to U.S. NATO allies, assess the concerns that Joe Biden is too old to run for president, consider the implications of Donald Trump threatening another trade war with China, and close with a lively discussion of Russia's open and determined war on war. Now let's go to the lab. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Politics Lab. My name is Bill Muck, and I'm a professor of political science at North Central College. And I'm joined by my colleague and best friend, Dr. Phil Barker, who's a professor of political science at Keene State College. Good afternoon, Phil. Hey, Bill. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, yeah, it's uh, we're, we're getting closer to midterms. You know, yeah. so we got the, the gradings coming. So uh, it's the calm before the grading storm. That's that's where yeah. I'm at. Yeah. yeah, I got tests tomorrow and then next week as well. Yeah, it's going to be a, a high. It's hard to I, this semester feels like it's going by quick to me. I, sometimes they drag and this one's moving quick. It feels like we're going to turn around and it'll be done. I, it'll which be, is fine. Then, I'm looking for I'm looking forward they, to summer. That's right. This then it's summer. Like when we're done, it's and we're we're very productive in the summer. That's uh, the best. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. You basically work on research nonstop during the summer, right? Non nonstop. You know, I take a little break for podcasting, otherwise it's all research. Yes. <laughs> oh. Well, Phil, uh, did you watch the, the you know they're talking about this Super Bowl was a classic. Did you did you watch and enjoy this Super Bowl? I did watch the Super Bowl. Yeah. Uh and I don't know if I enjoyed it though. <laughs> you and I were texting some. It felt like uh I, it it's sh- like on paper it should have been a classic right like going to overtime and yeah. sort of the back and forth but it felt it was like it felt painful to watch <laughs> like I, it, I mean it was even really good defense and I like good defense but it yeah it was I don't know it felt what did you did you enjoy you you had a like a, a nacho bar or something at your house so you probably yes. enjoyed it more than I did. We did have a good nacho bar. Uh, it was fantastic. That was for the food was wonderful. The company was great and all of that. But like you, you and I were texting toward the end of overtime, debating whether we would stay up for the second <laughs> overtime, sort of rooting for the game to be over. That had sort of a, a reflection. Maybe that's just a reflection on us that, you know, the idea mm-hmm. is, is, you know, because it's a long game and there's, you know, the advertising and the usher and all that stuff, you know. Uh, so there's a lot to do and you get pretty worn out. I felt like the next day I was so tired. It felt like, you know, I, I had stayed out all night. I felt like I was Travis Kelsey, you know, going out partying all night when the, the reality is it was exactly the opposite. I went to bed immediately afterwards, but it took me like two days to recover from just staying up a little later and you're an hour ahead or behind yes. or however you want to say it of me so like i was i was up even later than you were yeah it's I, we're, we're old bill it's official if I, if I lived on east coast time i would just give up watching sports it's just not <laughs> not an option there's no way i couldn't do it oh it's just too yeah too late it, so it is the worst when it comes to like when it's like world series time and the games are like starting at like 9 p.m it's oh, it's terrible <laughs> That is rough. That is rough. At least, yeah. at least the Super Bowl. We we both also agreed though that Tony Romo was terrible in the in the in the uh, what I thought was great. This is yet another way that you and I are ahead of the news curve. You and I were texting about how how uh, anno- or I was texting you about yeah. how annoying I found him. <laughs> and then the next day, both the New York Times and the Washington Post had stories on how awful Tony Romo was as a commentator. I, we're smart, Bill. We we are we're on the cutting edge of political science and uh, sports commentary, right? It's a <laughs> Yeah, no, there was, you know, it was funny because you're right. The, the These are on the major news outlets where Tony Romo, you know, it's his final play, the touchdown. Usually uh, the analyst is, is quiet and Tony was talking all over that touchdown. <laughs> so. He just never stopped talking the whole time. (laughs) So, Well, we should probably transition from sports to politics. Uh, Before we do so, do you want to remind everybody how they can stay connected? we got some really, really interesting reading for this week. 
Yeah, so uh, thepoliticslab.com is the webpage. You can go there and find all your information about us and the podcast, but also all of our old episodes, and each episode has its own page. And if you click on this week's episode, there are links to a number of articles. I've got uh, three really interesting, I, I think, interesting articles about Joe Biden uh, and his age. We've got articles about um, all the topics that we're going to talk about. Um, the the foreign affairs article that, that you sent me that we're going to talk about, about uh, Vladimir Putin and his, his war on woke is uh, really fascinating. So all of that's available. You can find those links at thepoliticslab.com. That's fantastic. So we are going to start with NATO and the extraordinary remarks made by the former president, uh, Donald Trump. In remarks last Saturday at a rally, Trump ramped up his attacks on NATO, uh, claiming that he told a foreign leader of a NATO country that he would encourage Russia to do, quote, whatever the hell they want to member countries, NATO member countries, um, that he views as not spending enough on their own defense. Uh, Phil, this is one where it's useful to actually listen to the audio of Trump. So let's let's roll the tape. All right. They were 250. I did the same thing with NATO. I got them to pay up. NATO was busted until I came along. I said, everybody's going to pay. They said, well, if we don't pay, are you still going to protect us? I said, absolutely not. They couldn't believe the answer. And everybody, you never saw more money pour in to Secretary General Stoltenberg. Well, I don't know if he is anymore, but he was my biggest fan. He said, all these presidents came in, they'd make a speech, they'd leave, and that was it. And they all owed money, and they wouldn't pay it. I came in, I made a speech, and I said, you got to pay up. They asked me that question. One of the presidents of a big country stood up and said, well, sir, uh, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? I said, you didn't pay? You're delinquent? He said, yes, let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. you got to pay. you got to pay your bills. Wow. All right. So let's let's be clear here. NATO members do not pay dues. Uh, they do not owe the United States any money. Instead, they follow, uh, following an agreement reached in 2006, NATO members have pledged to spend 2% of their GDP on defense spending by 2024. More than half have met or come close to that goal as of 2023. And many member countries increased their spending in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, there's been widespread criticism of Trump of Trump's comments, most notably from Joe Biden, who condemned them as shameful and un-American. Phil, we got that audio, too. Let's let's roll that tape. All right. If an ally didn't spend enough money on defense, he would encourage Russia to, quote, do whatever the hell they want, end of quote. Can you imagine a former president of the United States saying that? The whole world heard it. The worst thing is he means it. No other president in our history has ever bowed down to a Russian dictator. <coughs> well, let me say this as clearly as I can. I never will. For God's sake, it's dumb, it's shameful, it's dangerous, it's un-American. When America gives us word, it means something. When we make a commitment, we keep it. And NATO is a sacred commitment. Donald Trump looks at this as if it's a burden. When he looks at NATO, he doesn't see the alliance that protects America and the world. He sees a protection racket. He doesn't understand that NATO is built on the fundamental principles of freedom, security, and national sovereignty. Because for Trump, principles never matter. Everything is transactional. 
That's really interesting. It's 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 fun when Joe Biden gets a little fired up. So there's a lot to there's a lot to break down here. The reaction from NATO allies was harsh. Many European countries spoke of needing to move on from the United States. Uh, NATO has been a bipartisan bedrock of U.S. foreign policy for over 70 years, and all of this occurs while the Biden administration is urging Congress to pass a 95 billion dollar national security package to aid Israel, Ukraine, and other allies. Phil, where do you want to start on this one? I mean, this is a. We have to begin with just how, uh, I, sort of how unbelievable this is, right? I mean, this is a, it was. There's a reason why when when Donald Trump was president, it was so newsworthy and such a big deal when he wouldn't affirm the 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 commitment to NATO allies to defend NATO allies, and, and that was you know that was just a, a. It was sort of an absence of a of a of a commitment, and that alone was was a big deal. So for him to come out and and explicitly say that, you know, if you're behind on dues, uh, you know, we'll not only will we not protect you, but we'll we I would encourage Russia yes. to do whatever they want is is so out of uh, out of line with any previous president, right? Going back to the end of World War II. So it really is remarkable. And I think, we, again, we've gotten so used to Donald Trump saying and doing this sort of stuff that it's easy to sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, underestimate just how significant uh, it is. I mean, I, I think, uh, first of all, I, I, like his story... His story is like a classic Donald Trump story, right? Yeah. Where a president of some big country comes up to him and like this conversation <laughs> yes. did not actually happen, right? But right. but the, it doesn't matter that it didn't happen. I mean, it, what Joe Biden's point is, uh, is is really valid, which is that, you know, he he says this explicitly. And the, the, I think the line from Joe Biden's, you know, response, which is the whole world heard it, I think is yeah. the key thing. Like so much of this stuff, so much of, of NATO commitments, of alliances, it is is about credibility. It is about like you're, you're sending signals. And so even if the U S doesn't, you know, wasn't, isn't going to come to Estonia's aid, it's important to signal that we will, because that's what deterrence is all about. And now uh, let's say that, that, that U S would come. I mean, this is where you get into dangerous territory is that you, you have essentially encouraged or muddied the waters in a way that might encourage Vladimir Putin to test these limits. And, and you end up sort of bringing about the war that you're trying to avoid in the first place. Though it, it's just it is it, it it you know Joe Biden says it's shameful. It, it's irresponsible, right? I mean, right. I, even if 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 Donald Trump is not convinced that he would you know defend a NATO ally, you can't go out and say it. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, it's it's really kind of wrapping my head around uh, you know just again just how much of a threat Donald Trump is not just to to democracy and whatnot, but to this sort of global order that has that has provided for the most part a fair amount of stability um in the post world war ii era I, what's your i mean what do you how do you make sense of of this other than it it's it's not surprising to hear trump right. say it but it's shocking to hear trump say it at the same time it is and and you pointed this out like we've we've grown numb to the shocking nature of donald trump but this really is um you know and it's the danger of a political party grounding no longer grounding its its positions in ideology or doctrine but grounding it in a man right who decide you know donald trump who decides what his positions are and donald trump for whatever reason has decided that he is now pro russia right he's pro putin um, and that's that's what this position is cuz it's not about 
funding. It's one thing to say that this is really about getting these NATO countries to contribute more, uh, but that's not what it is. When he says he's encouraging others to do whatever hell they want, I mean, how are we to interpret that? Encourage Russia to invade Ukraine again? Or, you know, I mean, that, that's the thing. It's 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 irresponsible, as you noted. Um, yeah. So so it's again, it just shows the 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 place that the Republican Party is right now, and and it lacks any clear and coherent ideology. And again, as you know, it's not in the U.S. interest, right? So the only time, so Article Five is this this sort of mutual defense pact part of the NATO agreement, and the only time it's ever been activated was on September twelfth after the nine eleven attack. That's the only time NATO has ever pledged to come to uh, to another country's aid, and it was the United States, right? So it is in our interest to preserve this. And the other thing that kind of gets me about all this is that this is, uh, you know, a pro-Putin, anti-Ukraine position of, of Trump. But the Ukraine war has been very much in the United States' interest. So there's lots of conversation about the funding that has been spent. But if you, you know, you could spend a, a relatively small amount, you know, what the United States has contributed to Ukraine is, is in the grand scheme of things, a relatively small amount to do devastating damage to your one of your primary enemies in Russia without having to commit any U.S. soldiers. I mean, it, it, this is such a useful, strategic way to spend resources. So it's, it feels to me like that Trump's position is so disconnected from reality. And it really is all about a, a personal relationship, a desire to be more authoritarian. It's just, it's all of the worst reasons for yes. designing a, a foreign policy platform. And I don't know, I, I, I've been frustrated that there hasn't been more pushback on on the sheer idiocy of all of this, because this, is, this isn't a complicated or hard one. Well, it, it, I mean, I, I think back to how we've talked about Trump and about a lot of the Republican positions and, and, and this idea of sort of black and white and wanting things to be simple. And, and, you know, the idea of why are we helping out Ukraine or Estonia or whatever, uh, yeah. what have they ever done for us is a nice, simple way of viewing the world. But like, you, you're exactly right. Like when you're thinking about U.S. interests, you have to think about it broadly. And I think people tend to think of it in this sort of short term way, which is we're spending money. Why are we spending money? And, and it is about it is about you know american interest in terms of you know it's not great to have an authoritarian system you know an authoritarian country toppling democracy but it's this much broader it, it is about it, it's about um like you were saying uh, that the, the money that we spend on on ukraine is far less than we spent in in iraq and afghanistan yes. and it has brought us far more um and it's this broader u.s interest in terms of again having allies that that stand by us but even more than that it's a about American leadership. It's about like when, when you act as a leader and you have the sort of support of these allies in NATO, that goes a really long ways um, in terms of the other things that we want to accomplish, whether that's, you know, constraining Chinese growth, whether it is, you know, shoring up democracy around the world. These are all things that are important to America and that these NATO alliances are really important for. And, and this desire to sort of go it alone is has like deeper roots in American politics for sure. But the thing that we've learned over and over and over again is that when we withdraw from international politics, it comes back and bites us in the ass, yes. right? And so this is the perfect example of you know, there's probably some happy medium between an American empire in which we are everywhere and, you know, uh, an isolationist uh, world. So the idea of like we should think 
critically about where we are involved and how is a valid critique to make. But that's not a critique that Donald Trump is making. And you're, you're right. It is the other part that you're talking about is that it, this is, you know, it makes perfect sense when you view it through the lens of Donald Trump, who talks about loyalty all the time. But all that means for Donald Trump is there, there is no loyalty from him, right? It is it is basically, you know, if if you say nice things about me, I'm going to say nice things about you, right? And, and, and as a result, he can be played so easily. Easily. We'll talk later on this episode a little oh, bit yeah. about the ways in which Putin has has uh, you know successfully played Donald Trump. But um, yeah, I mean the idea of like standing up for something because it's the right thing to do is so foreign to him. And this is an example of you know that NATO allies have been critical of him. And so he's going to tell them to to shove it. And so the the problem is that might make sense from, you know, Donald Trump's fragile ego, but it's a terrible approach for U.S. foreign policy. Right. And and this is it's a really interesting thing. And I think Donald Trump is a, an interesting test. We talk in international relations a lot about, like, you know, to what extent, you know, are leaders acting, you know, uh, to what extent is it's a rational leader acting on behalf of their country versus are they acting on their own personal behalf? And Donald Trump is clearly someone who's not acting in, I, I, I mean, his supporters would say he was, but it's pretty clear he's acting in his own right. self-interest, not in, you know, it's not that he thinks this is actually best for America. No, no, not at all. And and the while there has been some reaction in the United States, and it's gotten some conversation, it was in the papers and whatnot, the real reaction has been in Europe, uh, where where these, you know, the NATO allies are just up in arms about this and frustrated with this because, you know, they look to the United States for leadership because of the the strength, but also sort of the moral compass that historically the United States has had. And, you know, I, I was thinking back to the conversation we had with Roland Paris, who is a, uh, a former professor of ours, who is, was a foreign policy advisor to Trudeau in Canada. And we asked him about Trump and, and he, he openly noted that NATO allies don't believe that the United States is going to be credibly engaging the world. And he said they want the United States to engage the world. The, the, you know, the rest of the world looks for the United States and their leadership and guidance, especially NATO. Um, you know, the United States helps solve collective action problems. But then when the United States turns away, um, at some point, Europe is going to have to say, fine, we're going to have to do this on our own. Or, the, or NATO says it's going to have to do this, do it on their own. And so it's again, it's just it's it's poor leadership. It's bad policy for just a whole host of reasons. It's just it's really silly other than to your point. It, it scratches uh, Trump's ego and and the relationship he hopes to have at some point with Vladimir Putin. So, I mean, this is an interesting test of of to what extent has Donald Trump sort of consumed the Republican Party? Because, I, you know, you noted in your intro that that, uh, you know, Congress is is pass, is in the process of passing this this uh, aid package and, and, you know, immigration packages and all sorts of other things. And Donald Trump is sort of actively working mm-hmm. against them. And yeah. so you, you see this split in the Republican Party and that there are still these kind of old school Republicans who value American leadership and security and see Putin as a as an enemy and and recognize these benefits. But Trump has the rhetoric, right? He's, he's, he's controlling the rhetoric of the party. And so, um, you know, you, you have this contradiction, um, and, and it's unclear to me, like how much of this is a Trump problem and how much of this is a conservative movement problem. Right. And so Mm -hmm. that's where, you know, you talk about the world wants the U S to be a leader. And I think about if I put myself in the shoes of, you know, France or Germany or Canada, um, if it's a Trump problem, that's something that you figure out how 
how do we get through four years of this? But if this is uh, if this is the new normal that Trump goes away and what he's actually revealed is this you know real isolationist uh, kind of nationalist bent amongst a big chunk of the conservative movement in America, then then you know Europe is right to start thinking about a post-U.S. world or a post-American NATO. And so I I don't know. I mean I I that's one of those where I would be the the hope would be that this is and you know that that Trump is an anomaly, but but I, I don't know. I mean, it's again where if if we reelect him again, I don't know that I would ever have faith in in American leadership or the American no. people again in terms of these alliances. And and this is the moment where other Republicans in the party could have pushed back on Trump, could have said, and 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 you know they believe it. They they believe that NATO is an important thing, especially some of these leaders in the Senate. But they they deflect. Or they say, well, it's really about funding, and Trump doesn't really mean this. He's just trying to get the NATO allies to contribute more, and and, and they don't attack the principle. And again, the, as you noted in the intro, this idea that it's encouraging others, you know, encouraging Russia to attack others. That's the real problem here. It's it's not just about the funding. And when when Republican leadership doesn't push back on that position, it becomes a party that's just about Trump, and and it's a it's a really dangerous place to be. What is what is he? I mean, this is where again, there's this tendency to use traditional like uh, uh, analysis and understanding Trump, yeah. which is probably the flaw. But there's part of me that thinks, well, what's he hoping to get by making this sort of statement? And I don't even think he's trying to get that. I don't think he has any sense of who's paying their dues and who's no. not. Right? It's not there aren't dues, but who's yeah, right, who's right. contributing two percent? But is, is there some? Is is he is he hoping to? Is this a? I mean, I, I, it's not even a poker play. Is it? Right, is this, right. It's just purely electoral. He knows that people like it. Or is he hoping to curry favor with Putin? Like what? Like it's hard for me to even put myself in his his mindset. It's a great question. And, and you're right. It, some of it could be Trump has a, a good pulse on where the public is in. So maybe he's feeling that there's sort of an isolationist sentiment out there that could explain part of it. But but I think at its core, what we've seen out of Trump is a you know, a desire to be closer to these more authoritarian regimes, yeah. the the Hungary's, the Russia's, and to be frustrated with other democracies. Like he hated hanging out with the NATO countries. He didn't like them. <laughs> you know, they looked, I think because they looked down on him, right? They, they yeah. look at him as illegitimate. And so maybe that's what it is. Like he hates those who have scorn for him, but the authoritarians will, will lavish praise on him, make him feel good about himself. And so, which again is such, Phil, this is such yeah. a bad way to construct a foreign yeah. policy doctrine. But at the end of the day, it may be about ego and and, you know, the fact that these these democracies look down on him, they think he's better than they're better than him, whereas the as the Putins of the world and Viktor Orban's and and Xi Jinping, they all respect his power and authority. Oh, I, I hope that's not true, but I think it may be. I think you're right. I think it's that we, you have to quit using a strategic uh, lens for anal analyzing this and you have to use a psychological lens, right? Like this yeah. is this is Donald Trump. And I think back to like, I don't know, when if you were when you were in grad school, if you ever took a presidency class or whatever. But I think of the the old like presidential personalities, you know, yes. and that, that was yes. part, and that had been sort of discredited uh, to some extent. But this, you know, Donald Trump sort of revives, uh, you know, revives this idea that presidential pal uh, personalities matter, right? When you get somebody like Donald Trump in place, it's going to explain a lot. Of, of how he governs. This is interesting. Well, we should probably transition to our second topic. 
Yeah. So, so last week we, we talked about this on our Friday, uh, the second go of our broadcast on Friday a little bit, but, uh, last week, special counsel, Robert Hur released his report on president Biden's handling of classified documents. So this was created, you know, as a sort of counter, um, uh, to, to the, the investigation into Trump as well. Um, the report exonerated Biden of any criminal wrongdoing, uh, but uh, it also pointed to Biden's declining mental acuity as part of her's reasoning, describing Biden as, quote, a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. Ouch. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Biden and his team cried foul, arguing that the characterization was unfair and it was inappropriate for a legal report of this type. But whether it was fair or not, the damage is done. And, and it has reinvigorated debate about Biden's age and his mental state. Um, the Atlantic ran two pieces this week on the subject, uh, both of which I think I find fascinating. In yeah. one, Damon Linker argues that Biden should step aside now and Democrats should find a replacement. Um, he bemoans the willingness of Democrats to reason away any Biden weaknesses by pointing to Trump's awfulness and the mobilizing power of abortion rights after the Dobbs decision. Um, Linker concludes his piece with with this, and this is a direct quote. More generally, I'd like to see the Democratic Party and its defenders spending more time running popular, charismatic candidates and less time desperately trying to work the refs. That is, more time doing whatever is necessary to win and less time trying to prove that Democrats deserve to win. Mm. Trump is a sociopathic menace who must be defeated in November. However well, however well suited Biden was to the task of dispatching him four years ago, the situation has changed. Biden cannot possibly be the best person for the job today. The time to fix this mess is now, before it really is too late. In, in the other Atlantic piece, Graham Wood argues essentially the opposite by claiming that neither Biden nor Trump show any true warning signs of catastrophic cognitive failure. <laughs> he points out that, yes, some of our mental faculties decline with age, like our ability to do math, but a president is not expected to do math. He has countless staff for that. Um, other things like judgment, and in, they in fact improve with age, and we need judgment more than math skills. Um, Wood argues that, quote, before or any psychometric evalu- examination is needed, candidates should be excluded based on the presence of ordinary non-medical characteristics, stupidity, venality, <laughs> amorality, indecency, and plain old fondness for bad ideas and bad people. There is no medical test yet developed to weed out these deficiencies, but there is a non-medical one that is highly imperfect, imperfect but the best we have so far. It's called an election. So, Bill, I find this really fascinating. Yeah. Who, who is right here? Uh, you know, is is it time for Biden to step aside? Are we making too big of a deal of the age thing? Um, you know, where where do you want to start here? This is uh, this is such a hard one. And, every, you know, I found myself even while you were reading that intro pulled in one direction and then in the other. Right. When you were, you know, talking about the argument that it's it's time for the Democrats to move on behind Biden. I find that compelling, right? It it makes sense, right? You think about there are there are there's a long list of of really strong Democratic candidates who could instantly step in and and have more vigor. Um, at the same time, I don't know if I buy into the argument that Biden has lost it, right? Certainly, he slowed down. There's no question about that. His you know it's it's noticeable in his his walking in his speech. He certainly is more forgetful. But when you hear insider accounts. 
they say that Biden seems as as competent as anybody, right? Even Republicans off the record say like, yeah, the guy hasn't lost it. Um, he's still very much there. He knows, you know, he has the big picture in line. He's driving. He's driving this process. And so that I'm torn, like, I don't know, I don't know what to do, right? I mean, politically, I get the idea of just of just transitioning, but it's not going to happen. It would be a total right. dumpster fire. There's no way to do it easily. Um, so I think that's not not going to happen. But there's no denying this is a problem. It is going to be the issue that the Biden administration is going to have to address. None of the other stuff matters. I mean, sure, immigration will be maybe number two, but his age is the number one factor. And all the other things that we normally evaluate a president on, performance, effectiveness, governance, you know, foreign policy successes, none of those things matter for Biden. It's just whether the American public is convinced that he still is, is you know, is still with it. And I, again, that is it's that's frustrating that that's what these elections come down to. But there's there's no doubt about it. I think that the administration has to confront this threat um, and think strategically about how they present. What's the best way to present Biden so that you undermine some of those uh, perceptions? I, I don't yeah. know. What's what's your take on it? I, I mean, you, we've talked about this over the yeah. over the years about, you know, what, whether Biden is too old and and should we go in a different direction? And, I, you know, I, as I read these, both of these are they're both really good, compelling yeah. articles, I think. And I, I, I my tendency and, and I think this is basically what you're saying as well is my tendency is to say they're both right. Um, yeah. and, and I realize they're saying contradicting <laughs> things in some ways, but I think they're both right in this sense. I, I think that Graham Wood is right in that. I Well, first of all, I think you're you're right in that I, I'm not convinced that Biden has lost a step in, in a way that matters in, in the presidency, right? I, I find Graham Wood's argument about judgment really compelling, right? What we what we want, I, I don't care if it takes Joe Biden a little bit longer to get a location right or a, a math problem, right? What I want yeah. is someone, because they're surrounded by really smart advisors and whatnot. Yeah. I want someone who in these, you know, really difficult moments can make the right decision, have the right judgment. And so I, I, I think that's, I, I'm not that worried. I, I do, you know, he, he is old and, you know, actuarial tables and stuff would say there's a decent chance yeah. he doesn't finish out his term. Those right. are those are real concerns. Um, but, yeah, I, I tend to think that, you know, for the things that matter, uh, you know, like you said, if we actually look at how he's governed and how effective he's been, I think it, it's, you know, I'm, I'm not that worried. I also think on, on the flip side that Linker is right in that even though I'm not worried, the American people are yeah, right. And 100%. so I think that the, what matters is less about whether Biden can do it and more whether or not Americans think he can do it. And all the yeah. surveys show that a huge chunk of Americans, including like half of Democrats, have their doubts or worries about this. And so to that extent, I, I find Linker's argument also really compelling, particularly the part where he talks about like Democrats spend all of this time talking about how they should win, focusing on, you know, that yeah. they have this going for them and this going for them. And we can point to all the election, the midterm races that, you know, George Santos lost. And that's a good indication for us. But the reality is like you have a presidential candidate that whether he should be popular or not is not. And whether or not his age is an issue or not, it, it is because the, the people, the American people think it is. And so I, that's where I think this like we convince ourselves democrats convince themselves that that it will be fine that biden uh, trump is so terrible that biden will win anyway and and that's a really bad way to go about yes. an election when democracy is on the line and so i tend to think lincoln linker uh linker is 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 correct in that sense i i'm like you i don't think that's going to happen um right. 
Uh, but, um, I, you know, his point about like better late than never, I think is, is also valid. The, the other part that I come back around to though, is, uh, it, it is baffling to me that this is an issue when Donald Trump is the opponent, right? Who is uh, almost the same age and has as many, if not more of these sort of cognitive lapses, right? Like yeah. if you we were doing psychological mental evaluations, if you were picking someone to, I don't know, plan your estate for you or whatever, right? You would pick Joe Biden and his limitations over Donald Trump in a heartbeat. But somehow Trump is able to win these sort of rhetorical, uh, whatever it is, his nastiness, his his whatever, it, it wins people over. And so then I come back around to... Um, yeah, Biden has to has to fight this this age question. But if he stepped aside, I, whoever else comes in, there's going to be something else that Joe Biden latches on. I mean, sorry, that Donald Trump latches on to about them. And for whatever reason, he has this ability to 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 attack people. I mean, I I don't know. That's not a great that's not a great you know reason for not doing it. There there are you know I I still if I could get in a time machine and go back, I would go back and tell Joe Biden you need to step aside so right. that some other younger person can sort of take the helm this election. But um, yeah, here, here we are. I mean, that's the, all that to say, I, they're both, I'm like you, I go back and forth. It's, it's hard yeah. to, hard to, hard to decide. It feels to me like it could potentially be another Ruth Bader Ginsburg situation where mm-hmm. Ruth Bader Ginsburg should have retired uh, while Obama was president. But the, it behind the scenes, it sounds like she wanted to be replaced with Hillary Clinton when she was a president. And there's, again, a lot of reasons for that. But that choice ended up very much hurting uh, the Democrats and the, the Supreme Court, all of that. Right. So sometimes one's ego can get in the way in terms of when's the appropriate time to step away and let that new generation take hold. You know, you probably something up that I've been thinking about all day, which is this issue of why this sticks with Biden, but doesn't stick with Trump. Right. And yeah. I know it's I, I hate what about ism, but I'm going to play some what about is right? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, because you're, you're absolutely right. So, you know, on social media, you're seeing lots of clips going around from from liberal audiences saying, look at all the gaffes, look at all the misstatements, look at all the cognitive slips that Donald Trump has had. But for some reason, those don't stick in a way that they do with Biden. So I I'm trying to f- is is it appearance because Trump puts enough gold bronzer on, dyes the hair, um, and and is still sort of energetic, right? It's is that what the difference is? And Biden just looks like an older man. I, I I find it curious how we make these judgments and how we say we're not worried about age with Donald Trump, but we're very much worried about it with Joe Biden. And again, I don't, I'm not exactly sure why. Maybe this is more of a psychological question again. Why the American public is so it's the number one issue for Biden yeah. and it's, it's an afterthought for Trump. Yeah, it is very, it is very strange. And, and, um, I, it, it, part of it is, I think you, you were running into a problem that we ran into, you know, eight years ago in which like the media has sort of taken up this narrative that, that Trump has put out there. Right. And so, you know, all these critiques that were leveled against Hillary Clinton and, and for whatever reason, you know, Donald Trump was able to, to sort of, control or set that narrative in a way that we see playing out again here. And I, 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 I don't know. I think it's it, it, part of it is per, I don't, yeah, I don't know if it's the Donald Trump's sort of, you know, anger. I, I think it, it's party as well. Like we've talked about, like, I think Republicans are on board with their Republican candidate. They're, they're un, unlikely uh, to go back to this, you know, sort of holy war, you know, uh, analogy we've talked about when you think you're on the side of good and the other side is evil, there's a willing 
willingness to overlook, uh, you know, flaws on your own side because it, you're on the right side. Like, I feel like if it were flipped, right, and Donald Trump were the Democratic candidate and whoever else was running as the Republican, then I think the narrative would be about Donald Trump's, you know, yeah, uh, right. mental faculties. And it's partly the way in which Republicans have been able to set the narrative and partly about the psychology of the two parties, the this sort of all-in aspect of the Republican Party and Democrats are evil and we're going to latch on to whatever, and this sort of constant second-guessing that Democrats are doing, right? Trying to yeah. trying to convince people who will never be convinced that that uh, that they should vote Democrat or that 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 Donald Trump is bad. So I I, there, I think there is a psychological element to it, but I think the psychological element has more to do with like party behavior and group yeah, behavior. Yeah. And like in group out group stuff than it does uh, anything else. But yeah, it, it really is fascinating. I, it, the fact that it is working on such a big chunk, that there is such a big chunk of Americans who are not fully in the Donald Trump camp, but they say, you know, I'll take that guy who is sort of reckless and, you know, endangering democracy over someone who might not be sharp. And, and that is... I. I don't know what that tells us about our democracy <laughs> right. or about our biases as a people, but it's not it's not encouraging. Well, the other so the other question is how worried should and I know we got to move on, but how worried the Biden campaign should be? And to me, it feels like it should be a big worry. But then I saw some pollsters this week talking about that that Biden's age in some ways is already baked into the polls that mm. people sort of already understand he's an old man. And the argument they were putting forward is, I don't know how much difference it's going to make. And then the other argument I've heard that's somewhat compelling is that the focus is all on Biden right now because he's president. You know, it's it's a lot of this is signaling to Biden, signaling to the Republican Party, I'm sorry, to the Democratic Party that we want you to go younger. But once we get closer to the election, the focus is likely to shift less on Biden and more on Trump, which I think plays to the uh, to Biden's advantage. Uh, but it's again, it's hard to know how, how all that's going to play out. So I I think it's a big deal. But in terms of the party as a whole, I don't know if it's devastating yet. And I think there's going to be an inevitable shift back to Trump as these trials and as Trump's in the spotlight more. And that that is likely to remind people of how icky he can be. And then yes. may, people may come down and say, well, Biden's old and forgetful, but I still would prefer that over the authoritarian. I, that's really I think that's a really interesting point. And I, and I do think what, what we, we are in a world right now in which Donald Trump is lay, leveling attacks against Joe Biden. So that is what Republicans are thinking about. Joe yeah. Biden, Joe Biden, Joe Biden. But Democrats still haven't quite come to terms with the fact that right. Joe Biden is going right. like, to. And so yes. I think there are still lots of Democrats who are wishing that Joe Biden mm. weren't their nominee. And that's so, yes, point. I think you're, you're right. As we get to um, I, I'm still. You know, again, I'm not 100% confident by any means, but I'm still, I still, I'm not at a, I, I think you're right. The Democrats should take this as a sign that they need to do stuff to counteract this narrative, whatever that means, putting, you know, Joe Biden in situations that push back against this, this narrative. But, um, yeah, I still think push comes to shove. People are going to be willing to take someone who's declined a little and, and is maybe benign over someone like Donald Trump, right? I mean, it's just, it's, again, we're going to, especially between now and then, people are going to see more and more of Trump and like you said, trials and all of that. I'm still convinced that push comes to shove. People aren't going to be excited about it, maybe, but they're going to vote for Joe Biden over over Donald Trump. This is a really thoughtful point, right? Because we might see this play out, this 
sort of internal struggle within Democrats until the convention, until right. Biden's nominated. And then people will be like, all right, we're, we're, here's our guy. Um, and who's the other guy? Oh, oh, boy, we better get, you know, and then, then you might, then yeah. issues like abortion and other issues may come to the, to the the front again. And Biden's age may be one of many issues. So, yeah, it's it's uh, it's going to be a wild ride, Phil. But we, we, sh- we yeah. should move on. And talk about more Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah. So, well, so <laughs> so we've we've talked about a, a number of Trump's proposals. So if if he if he were to win, um, we've talked about a number of his pro- proposals for uh, a second term, from from targeting his enemies with prosecution to constructing massive detention camps. Um, but but new reports also indicate that he's planning to double down on his trade war approach with China. Uh, in fact, Trump has apparently been talking about imposing an across-the-board tariff on all Chinese imports. And, it, it, and at times, it's been discussed as making the tariffs as high as 60%. So, you know, he, we, we've gone through the trade war thing before, but it, it was never the idea of every single item made in China has a, has a tax put on it. Um, economists agree that any form of this plan from Trump would be massively damaging to the American economy. In fact, data shows that in 2018 and 2019, um, Trump's trade war tactics with China at that time were responsible for a decrease in American wages and the loss of hundreds of thousands of jobs at home. But a trade war, back to this, back to the previous topic, a trade war approach with China remains popular politically. People love this idea. So, so Bill, let's, let's dig into this. We'll, we'll have a sort of shortish introduction, but, but how bad of an idea is an all out trade war with China and, and why do voters love an idea that is like really well established? (laughs) It would be a a really, really bad for them to have this trade war. And yet they're on board with that. How does this work? It's, it's bad. And it's so bad. It might be worse than than leaving NATO, right? I mean, we think about the opening topic and how bad of an idea it was. Donald Trump is full of bad global ideas, and a trade war is one of them. And and you're right, and our listeners should know that there is really no debate uh, within the business community, within economists, that trade wars are bad, right? They, 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 the impacts are easy to measure. The, the math is overwhelming. Um, and we know that even the relatively small uh, trade war that Donald Trump engaged in it had a serious, uh, serious economic uh, negative cost, and this would be worse. I mean, potentially, this could lead to a sort of pre World War One or World War Two dynamic where the United States and China stop trading with each other, right? And, and history has taught us anything is that when when powers stop trading with each other, it's much easier to go to war with each other. So there's there is a long list of reasons why this is a really really bad idea. But as you note, politically, it's really successful. Trump goes out there. It's sort of this isolationist. It's this, you know, we're going to bring jobs back to America. That stuff works. So and and I think Trump probably, well, I don't know if Trump knows, but, uh, you know, everybody else in the Republican Party knows that this is, this is a terrible policy for the country. But once again, we're seeing Donald Trump putting his electoral and his own self-interest ahead of that by pushing a bad idea. And, and he's very good at selling bad ideas. Now, there's some question about whether he's going to do this for the campaign and not do it when he gets in office. I fully think he would do it just like NATO. I think he believes in it as a campaign tactic and then he will do it because he's sort of vengeful and and will carry this out against China because he doesn't really think about or care about the consequences to it all. So no it's it's disastrous. It's it's a it's a terrible policy. Republicans 
who have historically been pro-business should be shooting this down, but they're afraid of Trump, so they 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 choose not to. It's it's bad. Now you're you're a big protectionist too, right? I mean, you you like you like trade barriers. Do you have a different take on this? <laughs> no, I, I think I think you're right. When I think about this, it it is it is uh, again it it is it's just a bad idea across the board. It it reveals the extent, like you said, to which the Republican Party has shifted. It's not about free trade and small government. It is about interventionism. I mean, this is this. This is, you know, massive yes. government taxes on things that have have an impact of raising prices for people at home. Um, when we when he did this before, it, it resulted in the need to to put in place huge subsidies for agriculture and all sorts. Yes. So this is not a small government. This is not no. a free market approach. This has this looks nothing like a Republican policy of just a few decades ago. So this is the extent to which you know Republicanism has become very much about sort of nationalism, right? National nationalism and, and, and isolationism and, and all of that. And, and to that extent, you're right in that this looks a lot like the buildup to, you know, the world wars, which is not a, not a great uh, thing to look like. No. So, um, you know, when I think about, well, why, if, if this is so obviously bad, how is it popular? And, and that's where I, I come back around to, I mean, it, you know, when I talk about trade in class, I try to make the argument that this is a good example as well of, of, Republicans often have simple stories that are appealing and and Democrats are are more tied to the complexity of of the the reality of things in a lot of ways and this is where it's easy to tell a simple story, which is that trade with China happens. And so American manufacturing, whether that's, you know, steel production or whether it's manufacturing televisions or whatever, those jobs have been lost. Yeah. And, and that's a simple story. And that is where the pain is felt in this very concrete way. I know somebody who lost their job or whatever, right? Like the, you know, the rust belt and whatever. Um, but it, it, it trade is actually incredibly complex and, and uh, uh, pulling back from trade actually ends up costing more jobs oh, yeah. and more monies, but in more money in this, in this less sort of direct kind of way. And so, you know, we, we people talk about the uneven benefits of trade, how like all Americans are sort of benefiting from trade. We have more products, better products, cheaper products. Um, and there are all these jobs that are created by trade, all of these jobs in American technology and finance and pharmaceuticals and all this other stuff that we are benefiting from. But it's harder to connect those directly to trade than it is to connect, you know, the the auto worker who lost his job to trade. And so I feel like the, the Republicans have the benefit of this simple story, even if the reality is much more in line with what Democrats have. And so I, I think it's it's hard for people to wrap their head around. They see trade as, you know, they feel these concrete things and they don't recognize that when they go to Walmart or Target and buy their groceries or their toilet paper or whatever, they're benefiting from trade. And so it's it's a difficult it, the the right position, which is embracing trade, is a difficult political position because it requires complex, you know, you have to, it's not easy to explain. And it also comes around to part of the reason why we're hostile to trade, I think, in the United States is because we've managed it so poorly. I mean, that's what economists also point out is that trade is really good for the economy, but it's the government's job to make sure that everyone is benefiting from those, yeah. from those bumps. And, and we have had 
40 years of stepping back from government. And so, you know, lower, lower taxes on, on the wealthy and all these less regulation means that, um, it's been great for the American economy, but largely that means that the average person hasn't benefited and the Jeff Bezos's and the Elon Musk's have benefited sure. massively. And so the critique shouldn't be about trade. It should be about governance. But again, the fact that it's taken me, you know, a number of minutes to have that simple explanation <laughs> is part of the reason why people don't get fired up about it the way they do yeah. other, 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 you know, the, the being able to point to the loss of coal mining or whatever as, as a, a political position. That's right. And it's it's part of the reason that Joe Biden has also embraced or continued a number of the trade barriers that the Trump administration started. So like when they were put in place, the economist said it was dumb. The Joe, you know, Joe Biden during the campaign said they're dumb. But when they got in office, they kept him in place. Uh, why? Because of the political benefits that come from them. Right. And the, the fear that if you remove them, it just uh, gives talking points to the Republican Party, to Donald Trump. Right. So they will leave them in place, even though they know they are not good for the American economy. And I think it's there's a broader turning away from the world that we're seeing in the United States. Right. So you're absolutely right. The manufacturing jobs are not coming back. The economy. The global economy is always changing and shifting, right? The manufacturing jobs are also leaving China at this point, right? They're they're yeah. all they're moving all over the place. That's the nature of capitalism. And the US economy continues to be the most dynamic economy in the world. And so if you have the most dynamic economy in the world, what do you want? Access to markets. Right? I mean, so it, you're you're right that it's it's these simple narratives that that push against trade, but the reality is it serves US interests to be engaged. Um, but yeah, I, I, and I don't know how you counteract that, especially when the American public is turning against, turning against internationalism, turning against trade. Uh, you know, all of these things sort of feed into this more isolationist perspective, which, you know, Fareed Zakari and others have written about is, is not in the United States interest. We should embrace, we created this global world system. And just when it's starting to take hold, we are running away. We're taking our toys yep. and we're running away with it. And, and that again, doesn't serve our interest. It's not, not a sort of an ideological argument. It's just not in U.S. interest to do so. Yep. And the other part that I think about is, is that there's another, you know, element or explanation of why this is effective politically. And it has less to do with economics and more with nationalism, right? Which is yeah. the element of, of, you know, what that race and whatnot comes out. This is white nationalism and it's easy yep. to, to point to and, and gripe about China. There's a reason why Donald Trump is, even though our top three trading partners are, and again, this is the other thing is that uh, China just fell below Mexico. Like, yes. Yeah, we don't it's need to, to like the Chinese. The Chinese economy is having its issues already. It doesn't mm. need like the the market is sort of correcting itself without these tariffs. But um, we're you know we're lashing out against China. We're lashing out against Mexico. We're not lashing out against Canada, right? And and so there are these there are these Wonder elements why. that right right. So there are other <laughs> elements that play to this, which is that it it is less about the actual issue and i think to some extent about signaling right and about yeah. about um you know who deserves favorable treatment and and who doesn't and i that's it's an ugly side of things but i i can't help but feel like for a for a chunk of trump's uh, audience that's part of what this is about as well it's this not is, about it's not yeah. just about it it's about the american the sort of you know the the white guy in detroit who's yes. working on cars as opposed to uh you know the, a chinese worker somewhere who's I doing mean, it I, Make America Great is is a clear signal to like who America is, what we're looking back to, 
what you know what that American looks like. And as our as the country becomes more diverse, more open, more international perspectives, like there are there is a contingent of the Republican Party and the Trump supporters who are are afraid of this change, fear yeah. this change. And so this fits firmly within that camp of saying no, no more internationalism, no more people coming in, no more goods, right? It's let's cut ourselves off from the world because all we need are Americans and, and, and the right kind of Americans. And you're right. There's a, there's an ugly undertone to all of that. Yeah. So, well, should we, all right, we got one more topic and I'm kind of excited about this one, Phil. This is, this is going to be an interesting one. So uh, our final topic takes us to Russia, where in March of this year, Russia will hold presidential elections. You won't be surprised to hear that after more than 23 years in power, Vladimir Putin is running for another six year presidential term. And despite the fact that not a single vote has been cast, we know with absolute certainty that Putin will win in a landslide. Yet despite the preordained conclusion, uh, Mikhail Zigar, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right is uh, who is a columnist at Dear Spiegel wrote in the most recent issue of foreign affairs that there is good reason to pay attention to Putin's presidential campaign. He predicts that a central component of that campaign will be a war on woke. Uh, He will, for example, talk a lot about family values, the importance of traditional two parent households uh, with lots of children. He will denounce the LGBT community movement uh, as a foreign campaign to undermine Russian life, and he will rail against abortions. What's most interesting about his piece is his explanation for why Putin will do this. He writes, quote, the parallels with the American right are not coincidental. Putin and his advisors have adopted the views and rhetoric of conservative American firebrands, such as anchors on the Fox News channel. The Kremlin has done so because by embracing the culture wars, it believes it can win over support from populist politicians in Washington and elsewhere. In fact, Russia has already won international right-wing fans. Conservative leaders across the United States and Europe, including former U.S. President Donald Trump, have praised Putin. Some of them have suggested they are happy to compromise over Ukraine's future. Putin's far-right rhetoric and policies are thus a form of statecraft. By championing such causes, the president appears to believe he can undermine Western societies from within. He likely thinks he can thereby tear down the rules-based international order. And he probably hopes he can replace it with a new conservative global system with the Kremlin at its center, unquote. That is just really powerful stuff, Phil. So, Phil, this is diabolical, super sneaky, and, well, pretty brilliant statecraft on Putin's part, uh, using domestic politics to win over international allies and then undermine the whole system. So uh, what do you make of this this, this piece? I, this was fascinating. I, I thoroughly enjoyed this piece. I mean, it, it really walks through kind of the evolution of of Putin's sort of social policies and and, yes. and talks a little bit about how early on um, Putin basically appealed to sort of middle class free market sort of people in Russia. Um, and I, what we know in political science is that as you know, to some uh, the, that sort of middle class pro business group um, eventually starts to push for democracy and more say and more more control. Yeah. And so um, it became clear that 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 sort of constituted a lot of the the core group that was initially supportive but was pushing back against Putin as he moved along and so there was this like conscious decision to shift um how he was sort of framing himself to this uh very very much sort of like Trump this kind of working class conservative uh group and that's been who he's sort of targeted now for the the last decade or whatever um and you've seen it in all sorts of ways social policies obviously pro birth and anti abortion and all sorts of other stuff um you know pro like the the prominence of the Russian orthodox church in in like the the imagery of Russia you see how this all plays out and so I, 
I, what I find fascinating is that this article does a really good job of explaining sort of the domestic reasons for this. This was yeah. important to help shore up Putin's support, but also talking about the ways in which it has become this sort of signal, right? That, that and, and in fact, that Russia has brought in, Putin has brought in sort of advisors to Fox News and whatever, has, has like watches what's going on on Fox News to sort of craft some of the same, not just the same subject matter, but the same sort of delivery, the same kind of uh, uh, style. Um, so it's substance and style. And it's this idea, again, of of appealing to the what what he's like, it's been massively effective, right? The fact that Tucker Carlson has this sort of, you know, fawning interview with Vladimir Putin um, last week, we've seen it sort of over and over again, in which he has created a system where the the people, the sort of populists in the United States look to him and see uh, someone who's sort of like minded. And so rather than a despot and an authoritarian and someone who's, you know, causing war, they see someone who is like them concerned about these conservative European Christian values. And it, it's been, it's kind of brilliant. And, and we see it like, like you talked to like in the, in the clip, it, it is, um, you know, the Donald Trump's and the Tucker Carlson's of the world, but it's, it's, you know, you see this in, in Germany, in France and all these sort of far right groups who find themselves praising Vladimir Putin. It, he has sort of duped them the way that we talked about like Donald Trump has sort of duped a lot of uh, voters here at home. It really it's it's a way that I had not really thought about the the sort of policies of Vladimir Putin, but it, it is really compelling in this article, um, and it makes a lot of sense. I mean, what, what's your uh, what's your takeaway? Yeah, I, for all I, I totally agree with absolutely what you said. Right, the idea that he's using his domestic politics in Russia to shape the political discourse elsewhere around the world is is. Again, it is, is diabolical, right? And it's smart because he knows he's looking at what's going on in these countries and how do I endear myself to those political movements and how do I encourage them along, right? With the hope being that not only does they do they then pursue Pope pro-Putin positions, right? So if Donald Trump is reelected, I think Ukraine realizes they're out of luck, that the United States no longer will support Ukraine. But it also helps Putin undermine that very system by undermining the democracies as well, right? So as these movements, you know, the alternative for Germany, you know, the, the populism in the United States, the you know, the Republican Party, all of these movements undermine democracy, they undermine the stability of the system. It's 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 really smart. I I, I don't know how well it's gonna work, but it, you know, it's it's a an extension of what he tried to do in 2016, which is so chaos, uh, you know, in the United States. And now what he's saying is it's 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 more than just chaos. There are particular groups that I want to see do well. And so I'm going to shape my domestic opinion to try to curry favor with them so that we can blow the whole system up together. It, uh, Yeah, it is really it's a, a good on the author for sort of making those connections. because I hadn't thought about it that way. I had, had generally thought about Putin drifting this direction because it served his own domestic interest, which it does. No doubt about that. But I hadn't really fully anticipated the way in which. It, it helps his international position by shaping leadership in other countries around the world. It really is sneaky. Well, I think for Putin, they're, they're intertwined, right? And that I yeah. mean, part of his, his pushback and his, 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 uh, I was gonna say grumpiness, but it's a lot more than that. <laughs> yes. His animosity yeah. towards the West is the, the sort of single-minded push for democracy and human rights or whatever, which is a threat to his domestic rule. So, so in order to shore up his support at home, he needs, you know, domestic supporters, but he also needs to, 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 uh, rattle that sort of international consensus on democracy and 
and human rights. And so they, they, they really do go hand in hand. And, and you were saying you don't know how well it would work. It's going to work. But I, I would argue that it already has. Yeah, because I think yeah. about like the invasion of Ukraine, it, 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 as we debate, you know, giving aid to Ukraine and, and, and whatnot here, I feel like if, if we go back in time, if Putin hasn't already laid the groundwork where there are there's a big chunk of Americans who look at him and see someone who's like them, right? Who is again, we've we've talked about this as well, I feel like the the idea of authoritarian personalities. There are people who yeah. want to see order, particularly when order looks like the order that they want. Yes. And so, you know, yeah. it's I think Vladimir Putin talking about threats to Christianity and and immigration as a challenge and and all of this other stuff is what has led the laid the groundwork for where we are today. I think without all of that sort of social argument in in place, I don't know that he would have gotten traction with it, it would have been a much more simple like Russia invading Europe and why why would we support Russia? He has provided that answer to enough Americans that it's kind of wreaked havoc on American yeah. politics and on other countries as well. So I, I think it's already paying dividends for him in in really interesting ways um, that are really bad omens for the international <laughs> right. system as well. I mean, you mentioned the Tucker Carlson interview. So if our listeners don't know, uh, Tucker Carlson hung out in Moscow for a week and then ultimately got an interview with Vladimir Putin, a two couple hour interview. Yeah. And there was it was just it was very uncomfortable and awful. I didn't watch the whole thing. I just watched segments of it. But Putin basically, you know, it was lecturing Tucker Carlson. Tucker doesn't get hardly a word in. But Tucker Carlson was just happy to be there and, and sort of sucking up to Vladimir Putin. And and I remember at, so afterwards, there were a number of Republicans were interviewed about one of which was Ron Johnson, the senator from Wisconsin. And Ron Johnson begins the interview by saying, like, hey, Putin's a war criminal. There's no debate about that. But then he goes on to say, but a lot of what he said was true. And I thought, are you what is going on here? So right? Hitler did some good things. <laughs> right. Right. You're, you're you're saying, you know, I, mean, I don't know. It, it's it's very effective. You're to your point. It's, it's very effective. It's shaping the language, the discourse. You know, we talk about Donald Trump shaping the discourse, political discourse in the United States. Vladimir Putin is also having a role. What he says is being echoed by powerful U.S. senators, powerful U.S. media personalities. And Putin has to be smi smiling behind the scenes saying, I never thought this would actually work. Yeah. But, you know, these these uh, these populists around the world and specifically in the United States are eating it up. It's a really interesting, you know, talking about what motivates Donald Trump and what motivates Donald Trump supporters and talking about his, you know, personality and loyalty and psychology and whatever. There's there are weird parallels in that I think Vladimir Putin, like Donald Trump, is in it for himself, right? Like he's yeah. he's making decisions on on how this benefits him. But to see them sort of play out like Putin is is so uh I don't know. He's like a Bond supervillain more than yeah. than than Donald Trump, who seems to go about it in this sort of blunt, kind of uh, clumsy kind of way. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it, this this article really. Again, it shouldn't it shouldn't be that surprising to me, but it, it really does. I, I, I will find myself thinking about this article when I think about Vladimir Putin and what he's doing and the ways in which he is, again, courting, you know, international audiences um, for his own benefit through through the stuff he's he's doing. Right. This is not none of this is uh, legitimate views on his part. It's it's about, um, you know, uh, figuring out a way to remain in power, getting his we, his his goals. We often talk on the podcast about two-level games, that, that a, a leader has to think about his domestic audience as well as the international system. And a lot of 
you know, that there's oftentimes more of a fluidity between domestic and international politics. And and I think here we see this is exactly the case. The way Putin is in conducting his domestic politics has has an impact there, but it is also thinking about the international impact. So we, we often draw these sharp lines between domestic and international. And here's an example where we say we probably shouldn't. Yep. When I, I mean, two level games is the idea that you're playing these, you know, international and domestic and oftentimes uh, they're contradictory, right? Doing yeah. one thing is beneficial in one arena and not, not in the other. And this is, like you said, this is a place where they're lining up really nicely for, for Vladimir Putin. He can he, doing something benefits him domestically and it also benefits him internationally. Very interesting. Well, that's probably a good point to wrap up. Phil, you want to remind everybody now they're going to want to go and and check out some of these articles, specifically the Foreign Affairs one. Um, I, actually, Foreign Affairs is great. I, I think it's if you, if you don't have a subscription and you're sort of interested in these international questions, it's, it's a pretty good investment and you get a lot of really uh, creative pieces out there. It's not an expensive uh, no, no. subscription either. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So the politics you go there and click on this week's episode and, and all the articles from the Atlantic with uh, that. We talked about the linker in the Graham Wood articles, the, the foreign affairs article. There's, a, a, I think, a Washington Post article on Trump's uh, trade war stuff. So all of that is available. Easy links. You can click and, and, and do a little more reading. And, and like Bill said, the foreign affairs one in particular is really, really fascinating. So that's fantastic. All right, Bill, I will see you next week. Goodbye, Bill. Bye, Phil.